0: As I come to the end of today, I've just I've come to a conclusion, Church, that the Book of Acts is just one of those crazy books to observe and and to to study And, and I've been blown away by what I've actually found as I've studied that and hopefully you have been enjoying the journey as we've gone along here. We've seen in Acts that the church has been challenged on a bunch of fronts. It's had to find some creative solutions on a number of occasions. It's grappled with deep theology and somehow come unscathed out of it. It's had threats inside and out come against it and it has stood strong. If we were to grap- graph out its growth, if we were to make it a business model, you'd always see an upward scale, an upward thing going on there. And even when toughness come, when persecution came, it would actually spike because of what God was actually doing. It also had its flaws. There are elements of the first century church which would probably not fly on in a Western church conflict uh, context, would you agree? Some of the things they did there we probably couldn't do today, not to the same extent. There are scholars today who even consider some of the everyday behavior of the early churches perhaps even a little bit misguided. Perhaps they would thought, gee, they probably didn't do the right thing in the first place. It's quite interesting. But there are some significant strengths, some significant patterns. And I think it's worth revisiting them today. And I was talking to someone through the week who was going, you know what, I I like the idea of having a a summary at the end of this. And so that's what today is. The First Century Church did a lot of hard work for us and uh, showed us a way forward, showed us some really good things that we can do. And uh, and I find three common things imitatable threads going on here. And I'm just going to flesh those out with you today. So the first one is really, 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 really simple. Simply as this. The Church of Acts has a specific unity. Church of Acts has a specific unity. Acts 2 one, uh, verse 1, The day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. We read that as a result of the believer's Of this position, they were in the right position for the Holy Spirit to come and to begin the new era of the church. This is day one of the church coming together. They were already meeting as followers of Jesus and now they are becoming an official expression. We see later in 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 chapter 2 that the first 3,000 disciples were kind of adopting the same sort of mindset too, which is great. I bring up unity first with the understanding of something really cool. As I was thinking this through, this hit me like a ton of bricks yesterday. Unity was a thing because community was a thing. Unity was a thing because community was a thing. It's really easy to sit at home every Sunday morning watching Foxtail Preachers and be at unity with yourself. But Christianity in Acts is not expressed outside of community. You didn't become a Christian without joining us community and baptism was the base expression of that. So because community matters in Acts, so must unity. And it's a specific type too. As we explore Acts 2, we know that the journey of reading that passage is actually a little bit less arduous than the journey it took to write it. It's believed that Luke was gathering all his research about Jesus and the very beginnings of the church in the time that he came back to Jerusalem with Paul. Not long before Paul's arrest, um, but definitely many years removed from Pentecost. Luke didn't actually have a first-hand view of the Day of Pentecost events or that early first few years of the church but he'd seen enough and he'd heard enough to observe a church which was somewhat on the same page. You may remember this from week one when I did this, when I introduced the series, but I'm going to go over some ground again. All right? Luke could easily see an element of what he would describe as homos, oneness, singleness. He saw a oneness in the church. There is something that makes them one. And in his eye for detail, he had to ask himself a question. How do I define this? Luke is trying to be a historian here. Now, ancient historians had a little bit of um, creative license and and, uh, summarized things and and the way they did history and the way they documented things is different to the way we do it today. But he still had an eye for detail. He was also being commissioned by a Roman official And it's most likely an apologetic document trying to explain Christianity to to pagans who are trying to work it out. And he goes, how do I define this oneness? How do I make it, how do I describe its striking quality? Well, he could have said that they were on the same intellectual page. After all, Athens kind of had that, different people groups would get together and they would unify because they believed the same things about stuff, or they would be in the same ballpark enough to, to, to civilly debate about things. But as he's documented throughout this work, this was clearly not all the, ca- all the time, not the case all the time. There were different intellectual pages going on. He might have looked at the word eros because the church was told to abound in love for each other. Maybe an emotional connection was what joined everyone together. But again, nah, that wasn't quite the case either, was it? Not everyone's kind of like, you know, you can't see everyone being absolutely emotionally connected. Luke had a third option and it summed up the church perfectly. It's actually a Greek word called thumos. Oneness of thumos. Homothumidon. One of my favorite modern authors is a gentleman named Paul Coughlin. And he writes that in ancient Greek culture and in philosophical circles, it was the thumos of a person that was believed to be the bit that fired them up. He creatively says this about Thumos. Catch this if you're a deep thinker. Thumos is where our head and our heart converge, quarrel, and then put feet underneath our courageous intentions. Get your head around that. Thumos is where our head and our heart converge and quarrel and then put feet underneath our courageous intentions. In other words, it's a response to turmoil inside. In this reasoning, Thumos would drive a man to help a damsel in distress without giving it a second thought. Thumos would cause a per- person to get fired up in in- at an injustice. It was believed the Thumos of a man would riot and get mad when things were not going right. Thumos was the thing within a person that caused them to take passionate action in a cause they deeply believed in. The Greeks might have interpreted the actions of Jesus cleansing the temple as an act of Thumos. I believe the Christians today who are standing up for the rights of different people are behaving on Thumos, the ones standing up, the ones who, uh, who did a, a sit-in and shared communion and sung hymns and, and read out uh, the Beatitudes and read out about those, those, um, those abuse accusations about Manus Island, sitting outside uh, the, the uh, Prime Minister's office and doing that in a peaceful protest, driven by Thumos. I, d- I believe there are people who stand up for unjust things and actually go, you know what, something's driving me. it was the ideal mindset for the church because despite their emotional and intellectual shortcomings the church was unified in and one when it came to the cause they were all engaged in the lesser options could be true but only to a point a church united in emotion sits in its own comfort A big group hug is really hard to break into. To be on the same emotional page means oh, it is perfectly safe right now and to bring anybody or anything messy into that is going to mess it up. So let's stay on this one page. Don't change the page in any way. A church united in its own intellect ends up living in disdain for those who don't see it their way. So that even peripheral differences would cause people to be isolated and ostracized. It would also become a very proud church because knowledge puffs up. But a church that unites in cause and drive and passion. Makes space for all sorts of people and allows them all to find the love of God for themselves and the call of God for themselves. No thumos in the church means no drive. It means no passion. And if it's not found in faith or church, there's actually no reason to be here this morning. If there's no cause, there's no reason for us to form community. We're a community with a cause. The Book of Acts Church knows that their cause is to announce and demonstrate the kingdom and universal reign of God as inaugurated through Christ. They are driven because anything less than that kingdom reign is not right. Where there's no reconciliation, where there is no wholeness, where there is no beauty, where there's no justice, the united thumos of the church actively rises up and looks for ways to put it right. It won't be in full for the kingdom is not here in full. But we announce and wherever possible demonstrate what we can of it. We see that this unity was challenged though. A number of fronts, right? Unity is a strength in the church and the devil did all he could to try and break that up. Divide and conquer was the plan. It was challenged first with character. Ananias and Sapphira was the first major challenge for the church. It was challenged in conflict and with complaint. It was challenged externally with persecution being their chief uh, uh, um, problem with that. But we also see that each time something cropped up, the church fought to keep that oneness in full strength. When character issues came, the Lord exposed it. When conflict came, the church found a solution quickly. When Hebraics opposed the Hellenists, and that sort of stuff was going on, they found their own forward-focused solution. When persecution came, they scattered to save their necks but continued to make even more believers everywhere and still found ways to get out and connect with each other in the process. And even as Paul travels around, he is able to see unity continue with the Gentile churches raising funds even for the impoverished Jews. Why? Because they considered themselves to be in unity with Jerusalem. And said, so we owe our faith to you guys and we're going to join our hearts and knit our hearts with you. Unity absolutely matters. If we take it out of the book of Acts, we diminish the work of the early church severely. Philippians 2.2, Paul writes this, Make my joy complete by being, look at this for unity, by being like-minded, having the same love. Oh, the same expression of love. There's an unconditional one that brings us all together, right? The agape type. Being in one in spirit and of one mind. As a church, it's of vital importance that we aim to stay on the same page. That we aim to stay on the same path together. That we aim to unite in the cause that we stand for. And when that happens and when that continues, God does powerful things. That unity actively created space for the next key thing, the reliance on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is referred to in Acts 41 times. That's a decent amount of, of references. It's a historical work about people. And yet the Holy Spirit has mentioned that many times. We see that he is the key factor in giving them the voice they needed to be a witness to their world but it also gave them the courage and the wisdom they needed, as, uh, particularly in an environment where their lives were often on the line. We know scripturally that the Holy Spirit is actually the Spirit of Jesus himself. In John fourteen twenty six, Jesus says that after he leaves, the Holy Spirit will descend and will serve to continually remind us of the things that Jesus said in the flesh and to act as our advocate, as our counselor in our Christian life when we make the decision to accept Christ, we invite Jesus into our life, we are receiving the Holy Spirit of Jesus. If you look at Galatians, every time Paul talks about the salvation of a person, he talks about them receiving the Spirit. Much of what Paul writes when he's talking about the Holy Spirit is to do with salvation. But there is also Pentecost. We see a number of events through the book of Acts where believers experience a time of refreshing or empowering and the Holy Spirit is doing this. We often call this an immersion or a baptism. We read about these times. We see some instances where they begin to speak in other tongues or languages. We see new levels of boldness. We see new levels of clarity and communication. We see miracles. We see other signs along the way. Next week, I am going to dedicate my whole sermon to the spiritual gifts. This week, I'm going to leave you with a really simple couple of thoughts here. First up, I believe it is perfectly safe to interact with the Holy Spirit. Particularly because the scriptures say we can't even be saved without His work. But also... The Holy Spirit is heavily featured in the vocabulary of Acts. And therefore, I believe he should be part of our spiritual vocabulary today. There's a reliance on the Holy Spirit that can be tapped into here. Too many churches don't go there. Some of it is because they don't know how far they can go or to what extent that looks like. Sometimes we are fearful of it. Sometimes we think it's something that's stopped back in the first century. There's different positions people hold on that. And particularly in Baptist circles, we have a very mixed bag in any given congregation. So next week, we're going to interact with that. All I will say is the Holy Spirit is there. We can rely on Him. So you have unity, you have the spirit. The third ingredient then comes after that. The church understands that it exists and it embraces intentional mission. Not something that happens by chance, but something we're intentional about. Acts eight is considered by many scholars to be the absolute foundation stone of the whole of Acts. And it's a spot where Jesus says this, you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. This gospel message was never intended to be a small thing the person who experienced or believed the gospel was never meant to leave it contained within them. It's something that cannot be contained. Jeremiah wrote that when he talked about his experience of God. In context, he was copying a battering from all those, you know, from those who heard what the Lord was giving him to say he would get heavily persecuted, treated incredibly poorly. Why? Because God told him to speak up. And even if he tried to shut his mouth, he couldn't. This is what he said. If I say I will not mention his word or speak up any, any more in his name, well, his word is in my heart like a fire. It's shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding it in. It tires me out just trying to hold it in. Indeed, it's an impossible task. Indeed, I cannot. Wow. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Sitting on a hill cannot be hidden. Look at us on a hill here. People don't put a a light under a lamp or leave it under a bowl, or put a light, a lamp, and leave it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and that they may glorify your Father in heaven. There's something uncontainable about what we have. It's too powerful to stay inside. The touch, the word, the presence, the salvation of the Lord is uncontainable. And as we read through Acts, we see it could not be contained no matter who tried to stop it. On day one, we see thousands coming to Christ because it could not be contained. It was just a little prayer meeting in a room. Think about that. They're in a room. And it erupted outside the minute the Spirit got involved. They didn't make it a big, oh, let's stay here and catch the fire. spilled out by its natural consequence by its natural effect out of Acts we see that the church embraces the fact that they have a mission field on their doorstep and it requires and it calls for their witness and they actively seek to engage with that mission field, to see the kingdom of God be extended. Through this series, we've spent a lot of time looking at the different people groups and the mentalities of the early church experienced and, and engaged with. And I hope you can go back and go back to those notes and go back to those sermons and engage with those and hopefully learn more from them. Because the cross-section of all the people that were represented in Acts, the ones being ministered to, we pretty much see here in our city too. There's nothing all that new. No curveballs in reality. Just look at about it. Look at the people we we engage with here. It started with the simple idea of Jewish audiences. The ones who had a familiarity with God just were just outside of Christ. People who were even experienced, expecting to connect with God one way or the other, and yet just needed that nudge, and Jesus was it. We expanded into a Samaritan audience, and then gradually, a Gentile audience. And the church probably wasn't planning to get in on that program. The Spirit had to actually nudge that as well, right? And then we saw a very wide Gentile audience. you got those who embraced the darker things of life, like the sorcery in Samaria with Simon and Cyprus. We saw those who lived like the Lystrans, who had a strong bent for pest, uh, superstition. We saw people in Macedonia with special needs. In Athens, we saw the philosophies of the Stoics and the Epicureans. And they still have an expression today in life. People who live like eternity doesn't matter have been bitten by the Epicurean bug. In Ephesus, we saw people living in the wrong baptism. They hadn't had everything revealed. They were kind of living in a in this place where they were religious but not near Jesus yet. There was others who had a a second-hand faith. In the name of that Jesus, someone else preaches. Come out. Good luck with that. People who didn't have a working, first-hand knowledge of Christ. And then back in Israel, we see the thinking of Festus and Agrippa. John looked at the power of testimony there. But if you study those two men... They'd been around Jewish circles all a, a long time. When Paul goes, I know you know the scriptures, it was true. They had just been surrounded by a lot of complication and hypocrisy. That's what their experience of religion was. It just took Paul to do a simple thing like, Jesus changes lives, let me tell you about it, to actually break through that. You know what, there's been a lot of complicated stuff get done out there in the name of religion, but the simplicity of Jesus changed me and he can change you has power. We've got a mixed bag of people here and we also have a very good list of principles to work with there to have a go at. So I'm going to leave it about there. Three key ingredients or principles that, in my opinion, capture a lot of acts. And I believe we would do well to examine them and consider how we embrace them too. I believe the call to be a unified body of believers is a massive deal. There are churches, even in this town, that will form and then split rather quickly. And they're forming in the first place because they don't want to be part of somebody else's thing. They want to have their own show and stuff like that. There's different uh, church environments that are just unhealthy because they try to build empires, and you can't. If you're not building the kingdom of God and just trying to get a social thing happening, it won't have power and it will split. Unity. Unity, because we are intentionally part of Christ's community. It matters. And to be unified in a specific way. We don't have to agree intellectually all the time. There's a lot of debates going on about a lot of intellectual things in church. Sometimes we just need to be able to agree to disagree at times and instead focus on the one thing that brings us together. We don't have to be locked in a big group hug either. In fact, it may be a bit alienating if we do. That doesn't mean we don't abound for love for each other. But love is more about how we feel today. Love has a bigger scope than that. And Jesus demonstrated that. But we unify because we have one ordained cause with an agenda set by the kingdom of God. And we come together to see that agenda come to be. Let's also be a church that is open to the Holy Spirit. Now this one, I'm preaching to the choir. I can tell that there's people here that engage and already we've had small groups and different things meeting to engage with the Holy Spirit deeper and to understand how the Spirit works. It's been great. I will talk specifically more about that next week, but for now let's just continually add the Holy Spirit into our spiritual vocabulary. There was actually a story years ago of a a, a preacher, one of my pastors actually said this, that he was in a Bible study and they're trying to just explain the Trinity and, and they are gone, well, how many people are in the Trinity? And one lady in his group goes, two. Well, hang on, how many people are in the Trinity? <laughs> two. What do you mean? Oh, well, you got God, you got Jesus. It all makes sense. What about the Holy Spirit? Looked at him blanking and said, well, no one preaches on him, no one talks about him, no one really teaches on him, so I guess there's only two, right? He got a bit more deliberate after that. And this is a universal call across Australia to get mission-minded in our backyards. And it's not because I'm some prophet, but I'm actually echoing what the Australian Baptist Movement is coming to the conclusion of right now. The Australian Baptist Movement is getting deliberate with this because our missional efforts in the last 10 years have actually not been very good. We're currently doing, the the Church Life Survey stuff is currently being collated and in about three years time we'll kind of know the state of play for the church today. But only a few years ago, we know the stats from 06 to 11, 2011. We know that the Baptist church grew by 40,000 people, which is great pat on the back, except only 1,000 of those were actually new believers across Australia. The vast majority were actually migrants coming to Australia and joining our churches. They say it's either one or two new believers per year for the average thriving Baptist church. I believe it's time to look at our missional backyard a bit, but also our missions in general. One of the leading Baptist voices driving the conversation is the Malling Bible College lecturer, Michael Frost. Who's heard of him? Prickly guy at times. Fun to engage with. This is what he wrote last month. The missional conversation isn't a fireside chat about new forms of worship or a more attractive model of doing church. It's a revolutionary manifesto about God's people finally coming to see themselves as sent people. Not merely sent to drag other people back toward church service, but sent into every nook and cranny of contemporary society to alert everyone to the beautiful peaceable joyous constructive reign of king jesus and to sow the values of that reign into the culture we find ourselves in wow when you hear about mission does that excite you does that stir something within it's a great phrase isn't it great the great sentence The Lord is clearly leading us as a church to have a bigger missional conversation in the year to come. The end of November is a Vision Sunday and we're going to be sharing how some of our evangelistic efforts are going to look. And I'm excited. There's going to be a time where we're going to engage with a wide range of people. And I'm praying that we're ready. The Lord showed me a picture at the start of this series. I don't know if it's just our congregation. However, I know other churches in this city are preaching this stuff at the moment too. The Lord showed me a picture of the church. Turning 180 degrees, but only a degree or so at a time. Slowly but surely, just a head Turning. And the Lord told me it was a head turning from looking inward to looking outward. And I believe the Lord has been doing that in us, stirring us up, reminding us afresh of what is outside our walls. And I really pray and believe, I'm hoping, (laughs) that we're ready to engage with what's out there it's great if we can in conclusion let's be a unified people actively engaged in Christ's community and pursuing their ordained course together to see a church, we see a church, there is a church in acts that is clearly interacting with the holy spirit and so should we and we see a church focused on mission even though it came with a cost. Witness is where we get the word martyr from. Even if it had the ultimate price, they were laying their lives down to be witnesses of the universal reign of Jesus. Unity, spirit, mission. If we want to reenact Acts, I think that's the way to go. Let's uh, call the band up. I'll close this off in prayer.